Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation. podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode Carolyn, Dorothy, David, and more, Cy Coleman's Lyricist. During an incredible Broadway career that stretched all the way from 1953 to 1998, composer Cy Coleman created the music for 12 Broadway musicals. Unlike most Broadway composers, however, he never was part of an ongoing songwriting team, but instead worked with seven very talented but very different collaborators. My guest today is one of those esteemed collaborators, David Zippel, who partnered with Cy Coleman on the score for the 1990 Tony Award-winning best musical, City of Angels, the hit musical that altogether received 10 Tony Awards, including Coleman and Zippel's win for best score. That show launched David on his own stellar career, which has been honored with two Academy Award nominations, two Grammy Award nominations, and three Golden Globe nominations. David's songs can be heard on over 25 million CDs around the world that include recordings by Stevie Wonder, Christina Aguilera, Mel Torme, Ricky Martin, Cleo Lane, Barbara Cook, Nancy Lamott, and include the original Broadway cast and soundtrack recordings of The Goodbye Girl, The Woman in White, The Swan Princess, and Disney's Hercules and Mulan. David and I first met shortly after we had both arrived in New York City in the early 1980s, and we've remained friends and colleagues ever since. Today we begin our conversation by talking about Coleman's Russian Jewish heritage. So many Broadway songwriters, Irving Berlin, George Gershwin, Richard Rogers, Harold Arlen, Leonard Bernstein, to name just a few, were the children or grandchildren of Russian Jewish immigrants. David, what is it about this Russian Jewish heritage that seems to make Broadway songwriters? Did Sai ever say anything about his heritage in that regard? Not really, but I share that heritage. My grandparents were uh, Russian Jewish immigrants on on both sides. I, maybe it was something that happened in the shtetl. <laughs> <laughs> There's something in the water there, clearly, that created Broadway genius. And good bagels. <laughs> and good bagels. 
Sai started out at the age of four playing a piano that was apparently abandoned in an apartment that his mother was a landlady and somebody left a piano behind and he just started playing it one day. And at the age of seven, he played at Carnegie Hall. So he has this classical music background and then he has this incredible jazz music background where his trio was quite successful. And then he also said he was very influenced by the Yiddish theater, which his parents took him to when he was a kid. How do you see any of that affecting his writing for the theater? It's interesting. Right before Cy died, he told a story. He was about to go back and perform as a pianist in a jazz club in New York. And he said that he started out as a classical pianist and said he wanted to be a jazz writer and everyone says, oh, you're a classical pianist. You can't do that. And then he became successful as a jazz performer. And he said, I, I want to write pop songs. And they said, well, you're a jazz performer. That's not what jazz people do. And he said, I'm going to do it. And then he became a very successful pop writer and decided he and Carolyn Lee wanted to write for the theater when everyone said, that's another muscle. You shouldn't try that. And he did and became extremely successful. And here he was at the end of his life going back to a cabaret. He didn't know it was the very end of his life, but in his 70s. And people were saying, I didn't know you could do that. I think Sy never liked to repeat himself, which is partly why his music is so varied. The man who wrote Little Me and City of Angels sound like different writers. And then to write witchcraft and on the 20th century seemed like completely different worlds. Light years apart, exactly. In order to be a songwriter for the theater, you actually have to be a dramatist in addition to being a composer and a musician. How did somebody who comes from a music background but then ends up being drawn into the theater, how did that affect his approach to writing a show? How much did he think like a playwright as opposed to a songwriter? I think that's one of Sy's great strengths is that he was a dramatist. I was going to say first, but certainly his first approach was how are we telling the story? How will music tell the story? And that's one of the reasons he was always looking for an interesting way into each show that would allow him to tell it in a fresh and exciting way. I found a quote from you that says, Sai never wants to do the same thing twice. He's always looking for a fresh, original way to tell a story or write a song. He is always looking for a creative challenge. Each lyricist, and I'm happy to be one of them, sparks a different chemistry. So I want to talk about each of those lyricists and we'll work our way up to your collaboration. And I have to say, it's an extraordinary group of lyricists. Those fingers in my hair That sly come hither stare That strips my conscience bare It's witchcraft we start off with Carolyn Lee, who wrote two Broadway shows with Cy, Wildcat and Little Me, and a number of amazing pop songs, some of the greatest ever, most of them recorded by Sinatra. What are your impressions of Carolyn Lee's lyrics? And do you remember Cy speaking about her at any point? And did he pass anything on to you from her? Uh, I do remember a lot about Cy's thoughts about Carolyn. And also, I met her once probably a couple of months before she passed away, there was a revival of Little Me. And there were two new songs. One was called I Wanna Be Yours, which is a beautiful song with a terrific Carolyn Lee lyric. I wanna be tied with velvety strings. I wanna be all those good for you things. Give your beauty rest springs a reason to sigh. I Wanna be all the cream in your dairy Your favorite tooth fairy 
the lump in your throat, the light in your eye. I want to be tried and terribly true. Take oceans of pride in all that you do. Be there nightly when you come home from the wars. Cause can't you see everybody needs some security when the going gets scary. Please say you'll be mine. I want to be yours. And I happened to go for the second time to see the show to the closing of the show. And I was on stage and there was an older woman who turned out to be Carolyn Lee. And I was in awe of her. And so I told her pretty much that. And I told her particularly that there's a reprise of I Want to Be Yours that is so funny and the lyric is so outrageous. And I showered some praise on her, probably a little effusively. And the way she accepted the compliment touched me because she seemed so, really? You really liked it? And I, I was amazed that either she was a pretty good actor or very humble and not as secure as you would think she might be, given her amazing output over her lifetime. Did she know you were a, an aspiring lyricist at that point? She did. I'm trying to think if I had written with Cy at that point. I know that City of Angels hadn't happened, right. so no reason that she would have a clue who I was or what I did. But I did tell her I was inspired by her and that her lyrics were important to me. And everything I do owes a little bit of a debt to Carolyn Lee because she was probably closer to Cole Porter than anyone else, I think. Incredibly sophisticated with great internal rhymes and rhymes across lines. Really smart. I tip my hat to her always. The other song I remember from that revival was Don't Ask a Lady What a Lady's Doing Now. It was a fantastic new opening number that she wrote or that they wrote together. With great jokes and right in character. Don't ask a lady what the lady did before. Ask what the lady's doing now. Don't poke around inside the lady's bureau drawer. What's it a thrill you? Ain't memorabilia that you are willing to is thrilling to the core. But make it fast before my facelift hits the floor. Don't ask a lady what the lady did before. Ask what the lady's doing before it all needs gluing. Ask what the lady's doing. Don't how well I'm doing, what others well I'm doing, that's what the hell I'm doing now. She was brilliant and yeah, funny. Yeah, really funny. And being funny as a lyricist is a hard thing to do. You and Carolyn are in that elect group where the jokes really land. You Thank mentioned you. Cy talking about Carolyn. Can you share any of those stories with us? They had a fairly contentious relationship and they fought a fair amount. My favorite story was that they were out of town with little me and Bob Fosse decided he was going to cut one of the songs and Carolyn was not happy about this. And she went out in the street and she found a traffic cop and she dragged him back to the theater and she pointed to the producer, Abe Burroughs, and said, not Abe Burroughs, Cy Fuhr. And she pointed at Cy Fuhr and she said, arrest that man. And she pointed to Bob Fosse and said, arrest that man. And she looked at Cy and she thought, I needed him. So she didn't have him arrested. She was trying to have them arrested for theft because they were cutting one of her songs. And 
<laughs> so I was just standing there. His jaw hit the floor. She was quite a character. All reports are that she was a very brilliant and talented woman, but not an easy collaborator by any means. So let's talk now about Dorothy Fields, who was the next lyricist that Cy chose to work with. The miniature walked in the joint. I could see you were a man of distinction, a real big spender. There's only a handful of female lyricists or female songwriters on Broadway during the golden age. It's interesting that Cy had those two really creative partnerships with women. Do you think that was just about talent or was there anything else to the fact of those partnerships? That's a very good question because he also wrote with Betty and Adolph and Betty was one of the great golden age women lyric writers too. I'm sure there wasn't an accident there, but I'm not sure the reason for it. Dorothy Fields has already had a legendary career, and I know that she thought her career was over when Cy approached her about writing Sweet Charity, and it added this whole new third act to her career, an incredible third act that most people never get. Did you ever get to meet her, and what are the songs of hers that influenced you? I, I regret that I never got to meet her because I admire her enormously. And Dorothy Fields, as you say, early on in her career— in the 30s, in a man's world, was a huge force. And she wrote maybe the best love song of all time, I Can't Give You Anything But Love, at a very young age. I can't give you anything but love, baby. And that's the only thing I've plenty of, baby. Dream a while. Diamond bracelets, Woolworth doesn't sell, baby. She was remarkable. And then went on to write the book to Annie Get Your Gun with her brother and worked with Irving Berlin. Quite an amazing career. What I think is particularly remarkable about her is that later in her life, late in her life, in fact, when she was writing with Cy, her ear for the vernacular, her ability to capture the current era never left her. She was always up to the moment. Sweet Charity has such a hip score and the lyrics like Big Spender and even in a ballad, Charity's big song at the end, Where Am I Going? What's in this grab bag that I call my mind? Where am I going and what will I find? What's in this grab bag that I call my mind? What am I doing alone on the shelf? Ain't it a shame? 
No one's to blame but myself Which way is clear When you've lost your way Year after year That was very much of that moment and it locks you into the 60s in a good way, I think. I admire her enormously. We don't talk about Seesaw very much because it was not nearly the big hit that Sweet Charity was. But again, even a little bit later, she still feels contemporary. And that was her last show. Where am I going? Why do I care? Run to the Bronx or Washington Square. No matter where I run, I meet myself there. Looking inside me, what do I see? Anger and hope and doubt, what am I all about? Where am I going? You tell me. Don't go away. Broadway Nation will be back right after this quick break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Factor as a sponsor to Broadway Nation this week. This spring, you can eat stress-free with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. You can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or my personal choice, Vegan and Veggie. You can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These are no-fuss, no-muss meals, and Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com bn50 and use code bn50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code bn50, as in Broadway Nation, bn50 at factormeals.com bn50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
The name of this first number we're going to do for you is Come Follow the Band. It starts out in the lobby of the theater long before the show begins. It begins with one instrument, a tuba, starting down the aisle. He's joined by another instrument coming in from the box, another coming down from the balcony until we build up to the full company and finally to Barnum himself as he sings the song. So then, I'm assuming because Dorothy Fields passes away, that Cy has to look for other partners, and he ends up connecting with Michael Stewart, who was most famously a book writer. And I've never quite heard this story about what made him decide to write lyrics somewhat late in his career, and then doing it so brilliantly, and then Cy deciding that was a partnership that would work for him. Do you have any insight into that? Only that Michael was the dean of Broadway book writers, and suddenly he started writing lyrics, and right out of the box, he was terrific. Come follow the band wherever it's at. Let both of your feet beat. Time to the drum and feel your heart go rat-a-tat-tat. A flag in your hand. What you're listening to is a backers audition recording that Cy Coleman and Michael Stewart made for their musical Barnum. Is there a sight that's sweeter than that? See the pretty lady toss that baton high. Ain't she cute as a daisy? Watch the fella with the big bass drum go by. Ain't you glad that you stayed? Hear the tuba play that um pop pa oh my. Ain't it driving you crazy? Don't you be so darn lazy. Better hurry and join that big parade. They had two big hits, I Love My Wife and Barnum, which are somewhat forgotten. Neither one has been revived, but those were giant hits. When you and I moved to New York, those were the big hit shows of the moment, and both of them have great songs, really terrific. Up out of your seat. Up out of your seat. Down off of the stand. Down off of the stand. So sweet in your ear. Hear those hip hoorays, the happy laughter when the music plays. And when you see the leader proudly raise his hand. Just follow the Then Cy, as we mentioned a minute ago, starts to collaborate with Betty Comden and Adolph Green, and they do On the 20th Century. I was a law student when On the 20th Century happened, and I happened to be living in Boston. They were trying out there, and I went to see it three or four times in previews just to see how they would change it. It was quite exciting. That was 1977, I think. And you so, haven't met Cy at this point. I have not. So that's so really I, interesting I, that you're studying his work in preparation, unbeknownst to any of you, for this collaboration that's going to happen. Even in the 60s, our community theater in my little town in Easton, Pennsylvania, did Sweet Charity. And I saw that and was just blown away by the score. He was one of my heroes right from the start. And if someone had whispered in your ear at that moment that you were going to collaborate with him someday, would you have believed that? Would that have been anywhere in your world of possibility? It didn't seem impossible to me, but I was also realistic enough to know that it was a long shot. Anything else about On the 20th Century? Any observations as you studied them putting it together? One of the things I remember was at the first performance, because I went to the very first performance, and this isn't a story about Cy as much, but 
Kevin Klein, who was totally unknown at that moment, was so extraordinary that I was sure that he was going to win a Tony Award and become a huge star. By the curtain of the first act, it was clear. He just jumped off that stage. And I didn't see it until the show got to Broadway, but it was one of those very few performances where you feel like they should just hand him the Tony Award at the curtain call, because why wait? There's no possibility that anyone else will win the Tony that season. They could have done it in intermission. (laughs) Exactly. So Cy, for the next show, writes his own lyrics for Welcome to the Club, one of his biggest failed shows. Do you have any insight into how that happened? Could he not find anybody he was wanted to work with? Did he always want to try his hand at lyrics? What led to that moment? I don't have a lot of insight into that, but I know that there's some beautiful songs in the show. And of course, the infamous Don't Fuck Around With Your Mother. <laughs> <laughs> lyrics um, by Cy Coleman. Indeed. And I was at the opening night, I remember at that point, Sai's assistant, who was a terrific woman named Terry Curran, is a terrific woman named Terry Curran, we were hanging around when the reviews started to come out. We ended up just spending most of the evening together. And I don't think Sai had ever had anything like that. Everyone was shocked and blown away by the, the bad reception to the show. But the music is fantastic. Song after song is just wonderful. And the vagaries of the theater... It's alchemy. You just never know if the combination of the book writer and the idea and the composer and lyricist is going to take root. And the timing of when it gets to the stage, is it not at the right moment for that show to happen? It was something Cy taught me, which was you never know when something is going to happen. And so keep as many pots boiling on as many burners as you can, because best laid plans, you just never know. Often you think, oh, my God, I have three things I'm working on. They're all going to happen at the same time but they almost never do. A star isn't available, a theater isn't available, or a producer passes away. You just never know what's going to happen. So you're inside Coleman's world by this point. You're already working on City of Angels. How did that happen? That took longer than I thought it was going to take. I went to law school, and one of my law school classmates was the son of a very prominent theater attorney. And my friend introduced me to his dad, and his dad was impressed and said, I'll represent you. And he also represented Cy Coleman and Larry Gelbart. And I had read about a, a, a project they were working on. There was a column in the New York Times called News of the Rialto, and it used to talk about future projects. It was not snarky. It was just a a news report. But they talked about a new show called Death is for Suckers by Cy Coleman and Larry Gelbart that was going to be a jazz-based film noir kind of Mickey Spillane musical. And I thought, wow, I would be such the right person for that. I can't imagine that they're going to hire me, but I would be the great person for that. Meanwhile, Albert De Silva, my attorney, and his wife started pushing side to meet with me. You should really meet this kid. He's really talented. They were very lovely and encouraging, and they also were acting like my press agents. And Cy liked for things to be his idea. So he wasn't particularly eager to meet with me. And then I did this off-Broadway show called It's Better with a Band. I started my career with a career retrospective, which is a kind of weird way to begin. But I'd written a few songs, one of which had been recorded by Barbara Cook. It was the only thing I had ever written that had any acclaim. I like to sing, but it's better with a band. I like to play the piano, but it's better with a grand. Ask any bass or soprano from the Met to Dixieland. Singing may be swinging, but baby, it's better with a band. It was the title song of one of her albums she recorded live at Carnegie Hall. 
So I worked on putting together a review of my songs with that title called It's Better With a Band. And they really tried to get Cy to come. And the reviews for that were really good. I was very fortunate. And he finally came, but he still didn't meet with me. And the producer of Barnum, one of his partners, Judy Gordon, another Broadway producer, had seen Barbara Cook's show at Carnegie Hall. And she was calling Cy and said, you really should meet this kid. And I think he felt worked over a little bit. So he he was very resistant. But between that and the, the success of the review, he finally called me one day to meet. I, I didn't know why he was calling me. I was just thrilled. And he was proposing that I take a look at the, the beginning of a book about a musical about cross-dressers. It was a very strange show. And as he pitched it, I was like a little crestfallen because I didn't think I wanted to do it. But I really wanted to work with Cy Coleman. But I didn't say no on the spot. I figured I'd meet with him a couple of times and what he was proposing. And finally, I said, Cy, Locajo Fall has already been done. And this feels a little repetitive. I was hoping that you were calling me about Death is for Suckers. And he said, oh, we're talking to a lot of heavyweights for that show. And I said, would you consider me for it? And he said, let me see. We have to pursue a few people, but give me a little bit of time. And about three months later, he called me up and he said, Larry and I talked and why don't we write three songs together, after which we'll stop and look at them and and decide whether we're all going to move forward together, which was a very polite way of saying whether or not I was fired. So I met with him and the first song he played for me was Music First. And it was very languorous and it was for the film noir part of the story. Actually, at that point, there only was a film noir part of the story. The show ultimately became about a writer creating a film noir. So there was a real life element and a fictional element. But at this point, there was only the film noir, and that part of the story had been fleshed out. So I wrote a lyric to that song, which ultimately became Lost and Found. Searching for Mallory Wanna play lost and found Well then here I am On the And they were really very enthusiastic about it and encouraging. One of the things about the project that appealed to him so much was it was going to be what we thought, and I think in fact was, the first truly jazz score for a Broadway show. And because, as you mentioned earlier, he was a very successful jazz pianist, this was basically going back to his roots and allowing him to use a side of his talent that not only had he not used in the theater to a great degree— but no one had really tried. We were trying to use vocalese. We had the Angel City Four. That was a jazz quartet that they weren't really narrators, but they were a huge part of the storytelling. And so by using them, we could take jazz riffs, like a trumpet riff, not unlike what Lambert Hendricks and Ross did, and write lyrics. And, and he would create a jazz feel by using soloist moments, and then we would take them and make them vocal moments. An example of that was the cadenza at the end of Stein's first song. Out here where nothing's how it looks, it's hard to disregard a candid stand-up guy who skips the double talk and lets you know exactly what he's thinking about you. And I can beat the odds and meet his demands, though I'm a stranger in the strangest of lands. This mad adventure I've begun. It's not like anything I know It's gonna be a lot of work And lots of fun 
Another example of using jazz to tell the story was Everybody's Gotta Be Somewhere, which is pretty much what would normally be an orchestral moment that I then took and set lyrics to. On the loose and so eat loose if you won't find it till you've checked every avenue like a diamond in a coal mine cheese where you would be expect. That was very much Sai's intention, to write a jazz orchestral moment and then I would set it. And actually, that was one of the reasons that I was so excited about doing this show, because I grew up listening to Lambert Hendricks and Ross and later other jazz groups. Take a little look, see, nose around, there's an underground crowd scout. Gives a little intuition, intuition, the shit you get out. Keep it up and near it, just you can't let it scuttle but cross your mind. If you're not an innuendo, round the bend, our hands you've yet to find. And the second song, I went into his office and he was about to go on a vacation. And he played me with great pride what he thought was the ballad. It was a moment in the show where the film noir chanteuse is in a nightclub and she sings this sad song. And the minute he played it, I thought, this is spectacular. And if I can write a good lyric that pleases him, not only will I have gotten this job, but I will have written a Cy Coleman standard because I thought the music was so good. And while I was in the room, I pitched the title with every breath I take, and he loved it. So I thought, wow, that's a good start. And then he left me with the music, which I recorded on a little uh, Walkman, and went on a vacation for about 10 days. And during that time, I wrote my first version, which I really liked. And then I thought, this is so important. So I kept rewriting it. And I wrote 12 or 13 different versions of the same song, with the same title. And I went to see him into his office, and I put them in a pile on the top of his piano. He sat down and he said, let, let me play through this. And he played through and sang the first version. There's not a morning that I open up my eyes And find I didn't dream of you Without a warning, though it's never a surprise Soon as I awake Thoughts of you arise with every breath I take. Which was all he saw because he didn't realize that there were 13 versions behind it. And as he finished it, he said, this is terrific. Let's call Larry and play it for him. So while he went to the phone to get Larry's number, I slipped away the other 12 versions. And <laughs> from then on, I was their partner and we finished the show together. So now you're in this world, you have to be just blown away by realizing this opportunity and having it all come true, as the song says. 
What then is this process? As you said, the show is still in a very early stage. Only the black and white half of the show exists at this point, not the color part of the show. What was your interaction in the development of that? At that point, after we had written about three or four songs, we flew out and met with Larry. And Larry said, I love what you guys are doing. I'm feeling like you're creating something really original and new. And all I'm doing is writing a parody of a film noir. I want to come up with something that's as fresh as what you're doing. Give me a few weeks, which turned out to be a few months. He said, I want to think this through. And when I have something that I'm excited about, I'll call you. So everything stopped for a little bit. And then Larry said, come to California. And Cy and I flew out there for one of the most exciting eight or nine days of my life. Larry had the idea of telling the two stories. And we sat down and the three of us together with Larry leading the way outlined the entire story. He had the characters and we talked about when they sang, what each scene was supposed to accomplish. First, we did the plot. Then we added the songs. And by the time those nine days were over, we had a complete outline and the show changed almost not at all from that. So you've got the outline, you've got the show ready to go into the final phases of writing and into production. What developed next? Because we lived on opposite coasts, Larry lived in, in Beverly Hills and Cy and I were New Yorkers. We would meet on the phone. We would fax things back and forth to each other. And in those days, there was no way to email a song. So those were played over the phone when, and whenever we were ready. And every two or three months, we would meet mostly in California, which I always welcomed the opportunity. It was sunny and lovely. And we would fly out there and integrate the scenes and the songs and polish everything together. When I got the job officially, I was so excited and a little unnerved at, at the enormity of the opportunity. And I just wanted to deliver for them. And Cy, who was wonderful, treated me like a gifted protege that you might pat on the head. And Larry, right from the start, treated me like an equal. I don't know that I deserved it, but I like that. Eventually, Cy and I became great friends, and, and I was promoted to a full partner. And I think we were all giddy about how it was turning out. We were in love with the, the project and with what each of us had created, that it was a very exciting atmosphere. And it took three years to, to actually get on, but I don't know that I would have traded a moment. One of the things that was amazing, Cy had a house in Southampton, and there were times when he would want to work in the summer. And so he would say, just come out for a few days. And I would come out and we'd write all day. And then at night, he would have guests come to dinner. And so one night... It was Bob Fosse, and another night it was Betty and Adolph. It was just dazzling to me to be in the middle of all these Broadway greats, and I kept pinching myself because it was a dream come true. And so then, in a similar vein, City of Angels opens. It wins six Tony Awards, including Best Musical and Best Score. So you and Cy win Tony Awards together for the show, which now puts you in this world of Broadway Tony Award-winning writers. It was just a thrilling time to be a part of something that I had loved and longed to be a part of all of my life. Cy used to talk about having a show running. The best part about having a show running, he said, was having a place to pee in the middle of the Times Square theater. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I think you are one of the rare people that is a crossover between the golden age of Broadway and the modern era right up to today. Not that you personally go back to the golden age of Broadway, but you had this opportunity to collaborate with several figures from that era, and at least for a period while they were still around, be a contemporary of those writers. 
I find this fascinating because you will pass this on to somebody else. And that legacy chain, I think, is unequaled in any other business. It's interesting that you say that because in many ways, my relationship with Cy was analogous to his relationship with Dorothy because she was considerably older than he was and and had an illustrious career before working with him. But Cy had already had great success by then. I was completely fresh off the boat when I started working with Cy right off the farm. But I think your point is right. She was of an earlier era. She's of what I call the Silver Age of Broadway. She's one of those rare people that crossed from the Silver Age into the Golden Age very successfully and had her biggest successes in this new kind of writing. And Sai is somebody who crosses from the Golden Age into the modern era very successfully. And that's also rare. So I do think that the analogy is very appropriate. And Dorothy, not unlike her collaborator Irving Berlin, also had his great successes in the Golden Age, although he was iconic in the Silver Age, as you dubbed it. I think that's a great name, actually. To me, it just helps people understand what's the difference between the two things. And really, the difference is the focus on the book. The Golden Age is about the story is going to drive the show. And right. the Silver Age is the songs drive the show. And that's why we don't do those shows anymore. They didn't have a story that compelled them to be remembered and revived. And a lot of the Silver Age Broadway guys were most successful on the silver screen. Yeah, where it was all about the songs. They, right. they could just focus on writing a song and not have to worry about the story. This was not the only show that you worked on with Cy. Unfortunately, it's the only one we've all gotten to see. Tell us a little bit about the other projects that you worked with Cy on over the years. There were two more. One, we were about half written when Cy passed away, called N, simply the letter N, which stood for Napoleon. With my eyes closed, I could never lose sight of all of the faults I adore you in spite of If we never met How long would I regret it? Only the rest of my life And it was a musical about the tempestuous relationship between Napoleon and Josephine. I would not care to trade for all of your jewels which I still haven't paid for Ten winters through fall How long will I recall them? Only the rest of my life This was Larry Gelbart's idea. You cheated at cards You cheated on me I never did it again my universe then but through it all I couldn't see you are the one mistake I'll keep on making they were both in love with one another but never at the same time tell me Scratches and bites, all the laughter and lies, and the tearful goodbyes. 
And the other show was another tragedy. Wendy Wasserstein had written a children's book called Pamela's First Musical. And it's basically a book about a little girl going to see her first Broadway show. We had done two workshops at Lincoln Center. And based on that, we were going to go to Palo Alto to Theater Works, who had done a lot of Wendy's premieres, and start the show. We were just so excited about going back into rehearsal and trying to put the show together. And Cy passed away really suddenly. He had a heart attack. And so Wendy and I and Cy's agent, everybody said, what are we going to do? And we decided that the show was in good enough shape that we could actually go into rehearsal. So we decided to wait a year and do it the following year. And then Wendy got sick. And not too long after that, she passed away. So I thought that was a lost show. But Graziella Danielle, the director and the choreographer, didn't want to give up, and neither did I. And we did a concert version for Broadway Cares, and we thought that would get it off the ground and nothing happened. And then out of the blue, a producer from a small theater in New Jersey called us. He had been working at the public theater when we presented it to them many years before and had never forgotten it. He said he loved the show and he'd love to do it. And we did a world premiere there about a year and a half, two years ago. And we finally, after 15 years, got to do the show that we'd always hoped to, to do. And it was a really happy experience. I think there could be a life for it after that. I think it goes back to Sai's advice to you about the ephemeral nature of writing for the theater. You never know what's going to happen when these projects are going to come together, when they're not going to come together. In terms of contemporary theater, COVID has had a devastating effect on so many shows. The City of Angels was in previews in London and was going to open the following week. And and had been extremely well-received by the audiences. And COVID just closed it, like so many shows, cold in the middle of the week. When we recorded this episode, David's current project was also on hold because of COVID. That show is, of course, Andrew Lloyd Webber's new version of Cinderella, for which David has created the lyrics. But over the last few weeks, Cinderella finally opened to rave reviews in London. Nothing would make me happier than for us all to be able to take a COVID-safe trip to London to see Cinderella and City of Angels on the same day would be my dream. I would love to be there with you, hopefully soon. Absolutely. Thank you, David Zippel. This has been an absolute pleasure. There's so much more we could have covered, and we'll have you back at some point to talk about your many other projects with other great composers. But I think this has been fantastic to look at Cy Coleman's career through the eyes of David Zippel. Thank you, and I've enjoyed talking to you so much. It all begins with make-believe A sudden spark of inspiration And every note of every theme Started with a dream In some Imagination. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. If you enjoyed this podcast, I invite you to join my Broadway Nation Facebook group, where there's a large and lively community of musical theater enthusiasts. We have a great deal of fun, and I feel certain that you will too. And if you'd like to hear more about Carolyn Lee, Dorothy Fields, Betty Comden, and other women who invented the Broadway musical, you may want to check out episodes 7 and 8 of Broadway Nation. Special thanks to Julia Murney and David Burnham, to everyone at KVSH 101.9 FM, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. We leave you with a song from Pamela's first musical. Before a song can start
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.